Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble falling asleep? Well, welcome. You're in the right place. This is Game of Drones, presented by Sleep With Me Podcast. The Game of Thrones podcast within the regular podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. What does the rest mean? I'm just going to talk about If this is your first time here, I'm going to talk. You're going to listen. But I'm going to create a safe place to distract you from whatever is racing through your mind. Whatever chattering from that mental chatterbox is going on that's keeping you up. Whatever's poking at you, twisting at you. The safe place is I'm going to talk to you. And you don't really have to pay attention to me. I'm going to talk about the ep- I'm going to talk about some Game of Thrones stuff. It's going to go on. And then I'm going to change subjects, talk about something a little bit different. And then I'm going to go on some more. I'm going to say, hey, you know, did you ever think about, um, you know, jungle gyms? Why do they call them jungle gyms? Did you know there was a restaurant chain called Jungle Gyms? What, what, is, how, you know, is it it's G-Y-M, but that's J-I-M. Was it, you know? Like that. And then you'll say, hey, this is somewhat, you know, huh, I did wonder about that. But then another part of your brain would be like, well, I don't really care. But I, I found with, with some people, what I, what I found for the people that podcast works for is it's, I'm just uh, interesting enough to distract the parts of your brain that are annoying, that are keeping you up at night. The, the smart part of you, you know, the part that's listening right now, maybe some of you already probably checked out. You know, you're kind of like, well, this doesn't make any sense. But believe it or not, those parts of you that are irritating you and keeping you from, you know, getting a good night's sleep, keeping you from falling asleep, those parts, they're, they're there to protect you. To You know, they're trying to predict the future, shame you from the past, whatever their uh, hang-ups are. They're, they're, they're about as smart as me. They're on my level. So, I you know, I, I speak their language, and their language is they just want to, you know, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. I don't know why it works, but they'll listen to me. You listen to me a little bit. I'll try, try to help you fall asleep. That's the goal here, to help you fall asleep. Hopefully it works for you. If it doesn't, I apologize. Give it a couple tries. If it doesn't work, you know, maybe if it doesn't work, I hope you find something that, that does work for you. But we're on web www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes are at www.podcast.com slash drones. If you hate Game of Drones episodes and you've listened before, uh, email me, feedback at Sleep With Me Podcast. I got a feed with our other episodes that come out on Tuesday and Thursday that aren't Game of Drones related. Uh, you can email me for other stuff there, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter at Dear Scooter. We're on Facebook. Comment on the website. I'd love to hear from you. And I hope I help you fall asleep. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I want to thank Chris Posty Posterson, who does our music over at soundslikeanearful.com, Scotty and Jennifer that do our art. Sir Scott and his lady Jennifer, who do our iconic artwork. The, the Lord and the Lady of the Podcast, who are officially the Lord and the Lady of the Podcast. That's all you need to know. You don't, you know, don't ask any more questions. The Defrenestrator is here, you know, in case they get too aggressive with that line of non, non-questioning. Uh, Damon D., who's on the backup, who's also rem- raising money for the Iron Man Foundation by participating in the Iron Man in Lake Tahoe. If you want to take a second and donate a couple dollars to Damon D, sleepwithmepodcast.com slash double D. That's it, two Ds. 
with Sleep With Me podcast and a slash in there. There's an endless amount of people uh, to thank that are, you know, all you regulars. Let's get into some newer, you know, I got some new uh, folks to thank. Samantha, who sent me a lovely email uh, on Twitter, LAB Experiment, said some nice stuff. WA5F Money, WAF5 Money. I want to thank, uh, they have a uh, a comedy uh, Tumblr that I'm going to look into, and I'll post links to that. Cat O, thank you. Robin H, thank you. Amy, thank you for your comments. Jessica, thank you for your comments. Aaron D, thank you for your comments. And Dax, she told me that means underwear in Australian uh, parlance. So, you know, you know, we'll, we'll get more into it. Barbara K over on Facebook. I want to thank Caitlin S as an example of our one listener listener initiative. Caitlin S introduced someone, Graham, to the podcast. One listener. That's it. That said 1% of you guys. If you want to help the podcast, only 1% of you that are listening right now tomorrow just have to listen to somebody that might say, hey, I can't sleep. And then you say, hey, I know about this podcast. It's don't hold it against me if you don't like it. If you like it, buy me dinner. If you don't like it, I'll buy you a coffee because, you know, you probably need whatever. But that's it. Um, I want to thank Pat Green. His book has not come out yet, but we're waiting on Pat Green's book. V. Runt, Jennifer, John, Julie, Richard, Vanessa, Tread, all playing around on Twitter and Facebook, joking it up. iTunes reviews. You guys are killing it. I am the the uh, algorithmic songs in process. Probably by the end of the week, we'll have 200 written reviews for sure. Who who knows how long? I, I'll probably just sing it in process, but I'm working on the song, Algorithmic. I want to thank Sarah Strawberry 79 for her iTunes review and say hi to her and her husband. I want to say hi to Allie Loves. Love is a story who also loves this podcast and loves Scooter. Oh, boy. Thank you, Allie. She said she'd love to talk about the podcast, but she's falling asleep. Uh... G K J G Fuhib Hujibahai Jakova Jabubi said we're like night Jesus. Uh, 4 a.m. nights turned into 1 a.m. nights for Gigogra. Thank you. Patricia S. says the podcast never fails her. She had a friend that told her about the podcast. Patricia, let me know so I can thank them. That's another one listener initiative right there. She did. She said she gave it a try. It works for her. Thank you. And then CBUS22 works for me. Delightful. Uh, so enjoyable. CBUS, are you from CBUS? Are you Because you're the first CBUS number one in my book. But thank you guys for the iTunes reviews. God's, uh, you know, I got, normally I apologize. We pray that I pray on the Game of Drones episodes I do the, the, as a part of the prayers to the God's old and new, but. I was so excited to say thank you. Sorry, gods, that I didn't thank you. But, you know, sorry, gods, I did not thank you because I was too busy thanking these humans. But uh, thank you. I'm thanking them on your behalf, maybe. I don't know. But I'll pray to you guys later. All right. Bye. Well, hey, guys. It's it's a Game Game of Groans time. Yeah, well, it might be a game of drones time, and I was thinking, uh, but well, uh, before before recording this uh, earlier in the week, I was like, I'm, just, I'm not, I'm, I'm a little bit behind on the uh, 
HBO Go behind the scenes stuff. And am I quite ready to jump into season three? I'm worried about uh, when does season five start? So I was like, oh, should I watch season three, episode one, or should I catch up on the uh, behind the scenes? So I started going through the behind, HBO Go as the behind the scenes features. I'm going to have to uh, get my hands on some DVDs to see what's on the DVDs. But so I started watching because usually, I think once in a while I'll watch them. Usually I'm just trying to get through the episode, you know, pause it, write stuff down, and um, stay in the flow of the episode. Not get mixed up, you know, you know how I get mixed up. But so I watched, I started watching the uh Extras, so I guess that's what you'd call them, uh, even though they're on, uh, they're the parallels technically for HBO Go because they're running parallel under the screen. I don't, uh, HBO just, so HBO Go is the app. I use my iPad it, underneath it, uh, underneath the screen while the episode's playing above it. You can turn on this thing where it'll have little featurettes, pictures, maps interviews, stuff like that. I talked about it before. I just want to make sure. I just want to paint a picture for anyone that doesn't have HBO Go or use it. So why is my inner critic attacking me right now? I don't know. Okay, let's just take a breath. <sighs> but it was great, and it made me think of like, okay, I could do a show and kind of run through these, but then I started noticing... Uh, all the people that were being interviewed, they interviewed a cast, Weiss and Benioff and Martin, and then a bunch of the crew that is involved in the show. So what we're going to do tonight, and maybe next week or maybe between season three and season four, is kind of, I'm going to run through the featurettes, but you can do that on your own time because uh, it's more of a visceral type thing. But I wanted to, you know, go through some of these crew members and, and cast members and be like, okay, who who is this person? What do they do exactly? And I don't know how long it's going to take, to be honest. So I don't know if this will be a one show. I'm de I'm definitely not going to get to every crew member, and it's definitely only going to be in the order they were appeared. Okay, this is like a, a SAT question. They're going to be in the order they appeared in reverse order of season two. So because I watched Valar, Valar Magulis. Blackwater. I think I watched four episodes of featurettes, and I took a bunch of notes. Some real cool um, little aside info in there, too. So we're going to run through my notes real quick, and then we're going to start running through cast and crew and say, oh, what is that per What's it? Who is this guy? Because some cool-ass motherfuckers uh, for, for real, and some uh, badass, you know, ladies, too. So we're... we're uh, yeah, so we're going to run through that. So it's a little bit different uh, episode tonight, uh, well, but not that different. It'll be boring. I can promise you that. I'll make it as boring as possible. There'll be multiple articles where I'll drone on and on, uh, but also interesting. And I want to give some of these people their due because, I, you know, I'm a Game of Thrones fan. And, uh, yeah, we, okay, so let's uh, join me, won't you? Uh, it is known that a lot of people put a lot of hard work into this show. And so let's uh, let's check out season two's uh, peruse, the behind-the-scenes zoos. Maybe what I'll do here is run through almost everything for the uh, last episode, season two, episode 10, and then kind of 
uh, touch on some of the highlights from the other couple episodes. But so the first featurette or uh, little thing is a uh, was an old scene where Pycelle got his beard cut off and showing the payback for when he puts when they showed Tyrion leaving a coin for the uh, the woman Pycelle was with. This was like maybe five episodes ago when they bust in when he was trying to find out who was leaking info to Siri, Circe, Siri, Circe. Um, sorry, I apologize to both of you. It was just interesting because at the you know the episode Pycelle leaves a coin for your trouble to Tyrion when he's in his new room. Then they show uh, uh, the, the Rose of Highgarden necklace uh, that I believe that I believe Loras's sister was wearing. Then we have an interview with David Benioff. Benioff talks about the Tyrells taking on a bigger role in season three. I noticed also there's some cool background. I was like, where is this interview? I did not find out. But there's a lot of candles in the background, very uh, very atmospheric. Then they go through Roz's uh, CV, the resume for you uh, Yanks like me. But you know, I'm cultured, so I know CV stands for uh, Curriculum Vitae. Curriculum some curriculum vitae, you know, life of uh, education and life or something. <laughs> something like that. But they show her through the first two seasons, Roz. And, you know, her working away. Uh, well, she wouldn't really work away to the top. She really worked her way through a lot of uh, slog and filth of human human being filth. So there's, then there's an interview with Gwendolyn Christie, and she talks about learning fighting. And it's really cool, fight, fight training, uh, how much muscle she had to put on. She talks about C.C. Smith, not C.C. Smith from old Saturday Night Live band, but Smith, Tommy Dunn. C.C. Smith is a fight trainer or fight coordinator. Tommy Dunn's a weapons master. And then Simon Brindle or Ben. Bindle, I don't know, my handwriting's bad, but I'll, I'll give him his due soon. Yeah, he's the uh, armor costumer. And it's a nice little interview with her. Then we have a uh, interview with D.B. Weiss, and he talks about Stannis and his connection with the world through the Red Woman and through his brothers, and how he, he now he's using her as a chance to get you know what he feels is his nice, nice stuff. Then we have an interview with George R. R. Martin talking about prophecies that may or may, you know, in, in our world that didn't come true or do come true. And then how he played with that as a writer. And then one of the examples is a Red Comet and how there's like eight different uh, viewpoints or interpretations of what the Red Comet means, depending on who you, and where you are in Westeros. Then there's a little uh, thing about Sir Mandarin Moore, who we, we dislike greatly. Then we have a nice little interview with Dinklage. He's talking. He talks about how it's back to the drawing board. He's got a nice red leather shirt on. And then there's a lot going on in the background that was distracting for me. But I also was interested in what was happening in the background. And Dinklage says, you know, Tyrion's a true survivor. P Peter Dinklage, you know, I'm not on a first, last name basis with him, so I apologize. And they talk about using atmospheric props to show the sack of Winterfell as opposed to, like, actually burning it down because it's like a treasured castle. 
I think that was in Ireland, but I'm not positive. And they show how, you know, they just added props to make it look like it had burned down. Very cool. And I think they used some, uh, they used some they sh- I think they showed some nice uh, drawings of that. Then we have a nice interview with Alan Taylor, who directed the episode. And he talks about the House of the Undying and how the dream world scenes and, and filming those. Then there's Frank Walsh, who was the art director. And Stuart uh, Bridson, I believe. And they also talk about shooting that scene in the snow and just the way they set it up. There's also uh, Rainier Gambos, who was talking about doing actual visual effects with, with stunt doubles as opposed to just, um, you know, 100% computerized stuff. And they showed some of the stunt doubles. And then we're back with Alan Taylor talking about the fight with Corn. Warren half hand, and we get more. Uh, we get our first CC Smith. He's dressed as like extra too. He's the sword master, and that's an official job title. I learned. He talks about the really cool to find out this stuff. Like talks about the different sizes of swords. You know how John's sword is so much bigger than uh, uh, Corn's. He had a short sword. I think John's sword. He said was a hand and a half. So just in, very, very interesting. And then Paul Herbert talks about that a little bit. Stunt, he's the stunt coordinator. Then we have Amelia Clark, Denarius. She talks about her taking on this new role as a queen and how it's this huge amount of responsibility for her and that she can really only trust herself and her dragons and, and her own strength, which is she's fostering and developing so that was it. And then I'm going to kind of keep going. This is the extras from Blackwater. We see a bunch of other production people. White talk, Weiss has a nice thing where he's talking about the Hound versus Bran. And, you know, they're a person that likes to have fun and not fun, how they're different and the same. Uh, we get, oh, this is one thing I started. Podrick Payne, Podrick, is related to Ellen Payne, uh, which is weird. Because uh, Patrick's so nice and Ellen, he doesn't have a tongue, but he just seems mean anyway, tongue or no tongue. But another thing is that Ellen Payne now, I had no idea about this, his sword that he's carrying is Ned Stark's sword ice, at least in season two, which is like, wow, you got some, um, I guess they didn't cut off your balls because that's, what a jerk. Uh, then we see some beautiful uh, concept art from Kimberly Pope. We hear again from Frank Walsh, Tommy Dunn. He talks about the land armies versus the sea armies in this scene. Flaming arrows. We learn about, about flaming arrows. And he really is the first person, in since I'm watching this out of order, who stresses like how much he's worked on epic movies and how similar this is. Not exactly in budget, but in scope of of these epic, epic you know movies of uh, that he's worked on. We'll we'll get into what he's done. Don't worry. And then Paul Herbert and uh, C. C. Smith talk about safety first. You know, in the filming these battles, but making sure people are safe. And then Frank Walsh has a beautiful. He I think he direct. Oh, he's a supervising director. Frank Walsh has a beautiful quote. He says, "You know, this episode was not the nightmare I thought it would be. Filming it and making it." Because, you know, I guess probably from the script on, it was like, holy cow, how are we going to do this with this amount of money and this, you know, make this awesome battle? But 
you know what, Frank? You did a great. You succeeded. And then we have a nice interview with uh, Jack Gleason talking about Joff and being yellow. Nice stuff. Benioff talking about Tyrion emerging from his selfishness and becoming a leader. Then we have Sophie Turner, Sansa, talking about that scene, you know, after Cersei pushes down uh, Lancel and bolts, how she tries to keep everyone calm. Then we have the Hound, Rory McCann, you know, talking about leaving town on his one-way ticket. We have Lor—oh, this is another big, big—I think this was just in a picture, but it says that Loris— in the is in this battle is wearing Renly's armor. Now that is a cool little touch, just like this uh, that Ellen Payne has uh, Ned Stark's sword. That's another cool thing. I did not know that. So Loras, and I think like that one scene I say at the end where it's really cool uh, with um, Tywin and Loras and these other soldiers. Presumably he's in. Uh, Renly, his, his love of his life's armor. That's, and that's very symbolic and visceral and cool. Then we have uh, Lena Haiti. Ha- 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 I got to figure out how to pronounce her name, but talking about Cersei and the fight, you know, that she's had her whole life and, you know, how no one's going to hurt her son, Tom. And Neil Marshall, who I think uh, filmed that. Then we have. We're going to jump to Prince of Winterfell. Alan Taylor talks about filming this scene where the lake froze over, but right before they got there and how everyone had to walk on the ice. But it was like too beautiful of a scene to, you know, just say forget it. And how they had to wear crampons. And we have a couple interviews there. And I think uh, the guy that plays uh, Corrin Halfhand says, I touched an iceberg. How cool is that? And then we have John uh, Kit Harrington talking about uh, not killing a great and it being wrong and selfish, but, you know, because uh, of his attraction to her and his interest in her difference, differences from him, and, and, and that maybe he is choosing a different path now. Then we have George R. R. Martin talking about Rob and Kat and this whole interplay between them and him getting played. Is like a fool by his mom, but his mom had saying, I got to protect my kids first. I don't care about anything else. And he also has a nice little talk about Jamie as how valuable he was because he wasn't just a good soldier or, or Tywin's son, but he was a good, he was a tested uh, a general and battle commander, which is like, I, you know, you could see him as a leader, but man, oh boy. Um, then we have Michelle Clapton, uh, Cat talking about Brienne, and then the the, uh, the the crew talking about Brienne's armor, and they called it town to town armor. Like she's assembling it as she was traveling, she was getting different pieces, so it's kind of patchwork. But also, they wanted it to be, you know, as an androgynous line as as it could be, while showing that she's this mighty, powerful woman. And then we're back with Benioff talking about uh, moral codes, Stannis's rigidity. And how he loses morality is like ends justify the means for Stannis. And we have Benioff on Tyrion talking, you know, when they're talking about assassinating Danny, they're like, oh, you got other things to worry about. Then Weiss kind of talks about Theon, really nice thing. He's like, you know, Theon's not really a sadist. He's not evil. He's not enjoying any of the stuff he's doing. And he says uh, the formative years of his life were spent with a good man. And then we have Natalie Tenna 
I believe is her name. She was talking about OSHA's maternal instincts for Bran. And then a man, with, a man without honor, you know, Rose Leslie, who plays a great, talks about how she's kind of like a fighter and a minx, you know, loving, teasing John, pushing his buttons. We have uh, Kimberly Hope Pope's Kimberly Pope's drawings for Heron Hall before production, so from Martin's books, and then trying to imagine this great castle that had been burned by dragons and melted like candles. Then we have David Nutter, who's the director, talking about uh, Tywin and Arya's bond. Then we have White Weiss talking more about John's temptations. Then we have uh, Nicola Coster Waldo. Uh, talking about his scenes uh, and how surprised he was of the way this, that scene went where he was imprisoned with his uh, kind of that other, I think it might have been one of his cousins, or I can't remember now, but the guy he really deceives. and But he seems to have a, he seems to have an ability to play Jamie, but also relate to him. Then we have Michelle Clap, Clapton, who does the, uh, the costuming, talking about the mask of the prophet that uh, they run into in Essos, I think it is. Uh, Lincoln, that prophet's mask that she was wearing, the metal mask, how it's since she's in the same, she's in, in cahoots somehow with Massandra, the red woman. So that the, the shares some design. Interesting, very interesting stuff. Then we have Weiss talking about the, dra- the power the dragons have brought to the world and to the ma- magicians. Uh, they're in Carth. Then we have Martin. He says, Cersei. I like how he says that. Cersei. Cersei. On Cersei. She wants to protect and rule, but she was never trained to rule. It's interesting stuff. Since she was a woman, you know, Tyrion, Tywin, excuse me, saw her more as a game piece. And he talks about how she has this paranoia because she's always been pushed out of the way and, you know, not trained properly. And then we talk about how uh, Nicholas Costawa, uh, the guy who plays Jamie, uh, talking about him and Kat. You know how he's not the aggressor; she's the aggressor, and he's his biting commentary is just reaction to hers. So you can kind of see like this guy; he really is into his role, and that maybe that's why Jamie is so. He just does such a wonderful job with Jamie, who's such an awful person. Was, but he's saying, you know, maybe he's not as awful as you guys think. But, you know, he has to do, I mean, in his mind, probably Jamie is a hero. In Jamie's mind, Jamie's a huge hero, but also conflicted. But, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go down that road another time. And then we, the last thing I have here is Kat kind of despising Jamie with, you know, 100% hatred and, and Michelle Ferry talking about that or fairly. So that's it for uh, the run-through. Uh, main thing that stu- stuck out to me was that Loris's armor. Ned Stark's sword, and then a lot of the little stuff about these character motivations. So you should check it out. If you guys have watched the DVD, so let me know, especially if there's any commentary tracks, then I'll uh, either rent them or, or figure out buying them. Go to my local library. Okay? All right, let's move on. Thanks. All right, guys, so we're going to do run through the, some of the crew and some of their jobs. Now, I fell... I failed. I just looked at my research. I'm sitting here behind the mic in the non-research mode. I'm in... Uh, you know, whatever you call it, narrative mode. No, not narrative mode. This is a, you know, talking mode. So we're going to talk about uh, Weiss and Benioff a little bit. 
But, you know, obviously they will be coming up again and again. Assume, you know, the last time they came up was Monty Python. And to be straight, these are definitely all three, Moise Benioff, Martin, everyone in the show, I've been jealous of. And they're heroes of mine. It's kind of weird to be have heroes. It's, it's weird to have heroes that aren't that much older than you. But, you know, whatever these guys are doing, what I dream of, I mean— this wouldn't even be – this would be like uh, pinnacles of what I would ever, ever imagine doing. So – but where I failed in my research was I wanted to talk about what a showrunner does because I don't have a total grasp on it. But um showrunner is like kind of the, the writers or that run the show, uh, TV shows in particular, Game of Thrones. They're the writers, but they're also the showrunners, like producers. So the show movies, this is what I do know. Maybe wrong, because I listen to Script Notes, my favorite podcast, uh, or my number, yeah, my favorite podcast is uh, Script Notes with uh, John August, Craig Mazin. I talked about it before, but you know they talk things that are interesting to screenwriters. Screen something we talk about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. But anyway, a lot of my info is gleaned from them, and then you know. Uh, Put in a pot, mix in with my ignorance. But the difference is, you know, they write movies for the most part. And so you write a movie and you're either hired to write the script or rewrite the script or you really buy the script and then they have someone else who rewrite it. But you're not always – you can be involved in the production of the movie and work with the director. I think Craig has worked a lot with uh, Todd Phillips maybe. I don't know. Now I'm already showing my, my – and then John has worked with uh, directors in the past – but he, he's most famous for working with uh, – he's most famous for working with Tim Burton, but he works with – but anyway, you, you have less power too in production. The director is going to have more power. But when you do a TV show, if you sell a TV show as a writer, you, you also become like the manager in some sense or the the director and, a, and more uh, – I don't know is what I'm saying. But the, these guys, not only are they doing the writing – but they're doing all the hard work. Kind of like this, I guess, I, instead of a podcaster, maybe I'm a pod runner. No, that doesn't. Podcast runner. But so, yeah, why does everybody say, oh, I'm a podcast producer? Yeah, how you doing? Uh, yeah, what are you doing later? I'm a podcast producer. That never worked. Podcast runner. Does not show runner. Uh, it has a, a vagueness to it that sounds maybe... Maybe it doesn't work either, even even in Hollywood. But I guess podcast. I like maybe I should stick to cast in the pod. But anyway, let's get to Weiss and Benioff and, and not worry about my insanity. So this will be a, just a touch about Benioff and uh, Weiss. David Benioff. He was born September twenty fifth, nineteen seventy. He's American novelist, screenwriter, television producer. We have one of his novels at work. That he he was part of this. Uh, I don't know if he was part of it, but his book's part of City of Thieves. I think is. Uh, as part of this one book night. Anyway, not important. But he went to Dartmouth, Dartmouth College. He's born in New York, New York. Occupation novelist, screenwriter, television producer. He's married to Amanda Pete. He has three children. Uh, he was born David Friedman in New York City. He's the son of Barbara and Stephen, who was former head of. This is all from Wikipedia, so it might not be accurate. Sorry, Mr. Uh, Benioff. Uh, his dad had a job. I don't want to, you know, get too much. Changed his name to Benioff, his mother's maiden name, 
cause and confusion with other writers named David Friedman. He's the youngest of three children. His family is of German-Jewish and Russian-Jewish descent. He's an alumnus of the Collegiate School and Dartmouth College alumnus. While at Dartmouth, he was a member of uh, a couple of fraternities and societies. At 22, he was a bouncer and an English high school English teacher in Brooklyn at Poly Prep. Additionally, he went to UCAL, Irvine, and Trinity College in Dublin, where he received a master's in fine art and in the creative writing program. And I think that Dublin is where Weiss and Benioff met. Now, coming up, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, while working as a high school English teacher, he wrote 25th Hour, later adapted it into a screenplay, which was filmed starring Ed- Edward Norton, directed by Spike Lee. He then wrote a collection of short stories titled When the Nines Roll Over and Other Stories in 2004. Benioff drafted a screenplay of the mythological epic Troy, which uh, Warner Brothers, according to us, paid $2.5 million. No citation, though. He wrote a script for the thriller Stay, which was directed by Mark Forrester. He wrote the screenplay for Kite Runner. He, uh, that was, he also collaborated with Mark Forrester on that. In 2004, he was hired to write the screenplays for X-Men Origins Wolverine, and he worked on that script for three years. In 2008, second novel, City of Thieves, was published, working on an adapted screenplay of the Charles Cross biography of Kurt Cobain. Uh, it's 2000, this is a little uh, deteriorating. He's also working with D.B. Weiss on Game of Thrones an adaptation of George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones series of novels. Isn't it Fire and Ice novels? Uh, in 2000, April 10th, 2014, Benioff announced he and Weiss had taken on their first feature film project to write, produce, and direct Dirty White Boys, a novel by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stephen Hunter. Uh, 2006, he married Amanda Peet in New York City. And they have three children together, but that's none of our business, for real. So that's just a little bit about Weiss, or that's a little bit about David Benioff. Then we have D.B. Weiss. Daniel Brett Weiss was born April 23, 1971. He was an American author, screenwriter, producer, and director. His debut novel, Lucky Wonder Boy, was themed around video games. He has since been linked with screen adaptations of various science fiction and fantasy stories, in particular his collaboration with David Benioff as screenwriters and executive producers of Game of Thrones. He's also expressed an interest in writing for video games. According to this, he was born in Chicago. He's a graduate of Wesleyan University, earned a Master's of Philosophy in Irish Literature from Trinity College of Dublin and a Master's of Fine Arts and Creative Writing from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. In 2006, Weiss, uh, in 2006, Weiss said he had a second novel that needs a second draft. In 2003, Weiss and David Benioff, who had been friends since college, were hired to collaborate on a new script of Orson Scott Card's book, Ender's Game, in consultation with then-designated director Wolfgang Peterson. It was not used. Weiss was hired to rewrite the screenplay for the film adaptation of the video game series Halo, based on a script written by Alex, based on a script written by Alex Garland. The rewrite was completed in 2006. However, Neil Blanc, Blomkamp declared the project dead in 2007. Weiss also worked on a script for a prequel to I Am Legend. Whoa. 
However, in 2011, director, I got to do an aside here, sorry, uh, Francis Lawrence stated he did not think the prequel was ever going to happen. Weiss kind of currently works with Benioff. Um, I Am Legend is, uh, you, you might have seen the Wolf, uh, the uh, Will Smith movie, or you might have read the book by Richard Matheson. I uh, had the pleasure of um, my brother's big into audiobooks. He was like, dude, you got to listen to this. I am Le- if you read I Am Legend, I was like, no, actually I haven't. I've been meaning to. He said, you got to listen to this audiobook. Uh, it's it's spectacular. Um, but you, you, So you should check that out. I don't know if there's only one version, but just the neighbor. And it takes place, I think, in L.A., where the movie takes place in New York City. But there's just this neighbor. He constantly yells in Neville's name. And me and my brother, said, you know, this is one of these jokes you tell on a podcast. Well, this is so funny. But me and my brother just have a great time saying Neville. Uh, so that's neither here. So that was D.B. Weiss, and I hijacked that to talk about Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. All right, so next person up is uh, Mr. George R. R. Martin. And we'll just do a quick Wikipedia entry. And then glance over at his blog, you know, he's, he'll get ongoing due as we talk about. But George R. R. Martin, he was born George Raymond Martin in uh, September 20th is his birthday. He was uh, from Bayonne, New Jersey, which immediately, you know, he's like, are you sure? Are you sure he's American and not English? Are you positive? Are you, are you positive? Um, he's a novelist, short story writer, screenwriter. He uh, attended uh, Northwestern University, got his B.S. in journalism, and then his M.S. In, I don't know what I'm, master. Uh, his genres are science fiction, horror, and fantasy. His notable works, uh, his personal life. Uh, George Raymond Richard Martin, uh, born George Raymond Martin, often referred to as G.R.R.M. by Wikipedia. Is American blah blah blah. He's known for Song of Ice and Fire, his international best-selling series of epic fantasy novels. HBO adapted for Game of Thrones. That HBO adapted for Game of Thrones. Martin serves as the series' co-executive producer, while also scripting one of each season's ten episodes. In 2005, Lev Grossman of Time called Martin the American Tolkien. I always forget Tolkien. Tolkien. Anyone? Um, a magazine later named him 2001's Time 100, a list of the most influential people in the world. George Raymond Martin, uh, and then he took his confirmation name Richard at the age of 13, was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, son of a longshoreman. He's got two younger sisters. His father's half Italian, his mom's half Irish. His family also contains... German, English, and French ancestry. The family first lived in a house on, um, I don't know, who put the streets of his houses here? Family first lived in a house that belonged to his great-grandmother. Then they moved to someplace. And then they moved to a house near Bayonne Docks during his childhood. This is a lot about his childhood. We don't need to. The young, I don't know if it's from his autobiography, so I don't want to just read that. Um. The young Martin began writing and selling monster stories for pennies to other children. Dramatic readings included. He also wrote stories about a mythical kingdom populated by his pet turtles. The turtles passed away frequently in their toy castles. So he finally decided they were fighting each other off in sinister plots. 
Martin attended Mary Jane Donahoe School and then Marist High School, where he became an avid comic book fan, developing a strong interest in innovative superheroes being published by Marvel Comics. A letter Martin wrote to the fan editor of Fantasy Four was printed in episode issue 20, 1963, in the first of many sent and others from his family home, including uh, Fantastic Four 32, 34. Fans who read his letters wrote him letters in return. Martin joined the fledgling comic fandom of writing fiction for fanzines. He won uh, comic fandom, again, used in the next sentence. Uh, he won the Alley Award for his pro-superhero story, Power Man vs. the Blue Barrier. In 1970, he earned a BS in journalism from Northwest University in Evanston, Illinois, graduating summa cum laude. He went on to complete his MS in journalism in 1971 from Northwestern. He objected to the Vietnam War and took uh, conscientious objector status. He did alternative service work as a VISTA volunteer, attached to the Cook County Legal Assistance Foundation, an expert chess player. He also directed chess tournaments for the Continental Chess Association. In the mid-70s, Martin met English professor George Guthridge from Dubuque, Iowa, at a science fiction convention. He preceded Guthridge, who confesses at the time he despised science fiction and fantasy, not only to give a spectral fiction a, give spectral fiction a second look, but to write in the field himself. Guthridge has since been a finalist for the Hugo Award, twice for the Nebula Award for science fiction and fantasy. In 1998, he won a Bram Storkor Award for Best Horror Novel. In turn, Guthridge helped Martin find a job at Clark University, then Clark College. Martin wasn't making enough money to stay alive from writing in chess tournaments, says Guthridge. From 1976 to 78, Martin was an English and journalism professor there, becoming writer-in-residence at the college from 78 to 79. While he uh, enjoyed teaching, the loss of his friend Tom Remy in the fall of 77 made him reevaluate his own life, and he decided to become a full-time writer. He resigned from, his resigned from his job, being tired of the hard winters in Dubuque, and moved to Santa Fe in 79. Career. Martin began selling science fiction short stories professionally in 70 at age 21. His first sale was The Hero to Galaxy magazine. It was published in 70, February 71 issue. Other sales soon followed. His first story to be nominated for a Hugo Award and Nebula Award was With Morning Comes Miss Fall, published in 73 in Analog Magazine. A member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Martin became the organization's Southwest Regional Director from 77 to 79. From 96 to 98, he served as, as its vice president. In 1976, for Kansas City's Mid-American, the 34th World Science Fiction Convention, Worldcon, Martin and his friend, fellow writer, editor, Gardner Dozios, conceived of and organized the first Hugo Losers Party, for the benefit of all past and present Hugo-losing writers, their friends, and families, the evening following the convention's Hugo Awards ceremony. Martin was nominated for two Hugos that year, but lost both awards for the novelette Seven Times, Never Kill a Man, and the novella The Storms of Windhaven, co-written with Lisa Tuttle. The Hugo's Loser Party became an annual Worldcon event. Thereafter, its formal title changing to something a bit more politically correct as both its size and prestige grew. 
Although Martin often writes fantasy or horror, a number of his early works are science fiction tales occurring in a loosely defined future history, informally known as the Thousand Worlds or the Man Realm. He has also written at least one piece of political military fiction, Night of the Vampires, collected in Harry Turtledove's anthology, The Best Military Science Fiction of the 20th Century. The unexpected commercial failure of Martin's fourth book, The Armageddon Rag, essentially destroyed my career as a novelist at the time, he recalled. However, that future led him to seek a career in television. After a Hollywood option on a novel led him to being hired first as a staff writer, then as an executive story consultant for the revival of The Twilight Zone. After the series, CBS series was canceled, Martin migrated over to the already underway satirical science fiction series Max Headroom. He worked on scripts and created the show's Ped Zing character, the president of Zigzag Corporation, Network 23's primary sponsor. Before his scripts could go into production, however, the ABC show was canceled in the middle of the second season. Martin was then hired as writer-producer on the new dramatic fantasy series Beauty and the Beast. In 1989, he became the show's co-supervising producer, while also writing 14 of its episodes. During the same period, he continued working on print media as a book series editor, this time overseeing the development of the multi-author Wild Cards book series, which takes place in a shared universe in which a small slice of post-World War II humanity gains superpowers after the release of an alien-engineered virus. New titles are still being published in the ongoing series from Tor Books. In second person, Martin gives a personal account of the close-knit role-playing game culture that gave rise to his Wild Cards shared world anthologies. An important element in the creation of the multi-multiple-author series was a campaign of Chaosium, Chaosium, 1983 role-playing game Superworld that Martin ran in Albuquerque. Martin's own contributions to Wild Card have included Thomas Tudberry, the great and powerful turtle, a powerful psychokinetic whose flying shell consisted of an armored VW Beetle. As of, as of June 2011, 21 wildcard novels had been published in the series. Earlier that same year, Martin signed the contract for the 22nd volume, Lowball, which has since been completed and will be published by Tor Books in the summer of 2014, which has since been completed and will be published by Tor Books in midsummer of 2014. In early 2012, Martin signed another tour contract with a 23rd Wild Cards volume, High Stakes. While he was making a satisfactory living in Hollywood, he did not feel fulfilled given that so few of the projects he worked on ever went into production. No money, no amount of money can really take the place of. You really want your stuff to be read. You want an audience, and four guys in an executive office suite at a TV station is not adequate. Martin's novella, Night Flyers, was adapted into a 1987 feature film of the same title. He was, not ha- he was not happy about having to cut plot elements of the screenplay scenario in order to accommodate the film's small budget. A Song of Ice and Fire. In 1991, Martin briefly returned to writing novels and began what eventually would turn into his epic fantasy series, A Song of Ice and Fire, which was inspired by the Wars of Roses and Ivanhoe. It is currently intended to comprise seven volumes. The first, A Game of Thrones, was published in 1996. In 2005, A Feast for Crows, the fourth novel in the series, became became the New York Times' number one bestseller and also achieved the number one ranking on the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list. 
In addition, in 2006, A Feast for Crows was nominated for both a Quill Award and the British Fantasy Award. The fifth book, A Dance with Dragons, was published in July 12, 2011 and quickly became an international bestseller, including achieving a number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list and many others. It remained on the New York Times list for 88 weeks. The series has received some received praise from authors, readers, and critics alike. In 2012, Dance with Dragons made the final ballot for both Science Fiction and Fantasy's Hugo Awards, World Fantasy Award, Locust Pole Award, and the British Fantasy Award. The novel went on to win the Locust Pole Award for Best Fantasy Novel. Two more novels are being are planned and being written in the Ice and Fire series, The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. HBO series production. HBO purchased the television rights for the entire song, a Fire and Ice series in 2007 and began airing the fantasy series on their U.S. channel in 2011. Title Game of Thrones, it ran weekly for 10 episodes, each approximately an hour long. Although busy completing A Dance with Dragons and other projects, George R. R. Martin was heavily involved in the production of the television series adaptation of his books. Martin's involvement included the selection of the production team, participation in screenwriting, the opening credits list him as a co-executive producer. The series was renewed shortly after the first episode aired. The first season was nominated for 13 Emmy Awards, ultimately winning two, one for its opening title credits, and one for Peter Dinklage's Best Sporting Actor. The second season of 10 episodes based on the... The second season of episodes based on the second novel, uh, Clash of Kings, began airing April 1st, 2012. The second season was nominated for 12 Emmy Awards, winning another for Supporting Actor for Dinklage. It went on to win six Emmys in Technical Arts categories. The first season of the 10 episodes was also nominated for a 2012 Hugo Award. The show went on to win the 2012 Hugo Award for Dress Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form at Kai Chicon 7, the World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago. Martin took home one of three Hugo Award trophies awarded in that collaborative category, the other two going to Benioff and Weiss. The second season episode, Blackwater, written by George R. R. Martin, was nominated the following year for a 2013 Hugo Award Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form. The award went on to win the Hugo Award at Lone Star Con 3 in San Antonio, Texas. In addition to Martin, showrunner Benioff and Weiss and executive director Neil Marshall Receive statuettes. Themes. Martin's work has been described in the Los Angeles Times as having complex storylines, fascinating characters, great dialogue, perfect pacing. While the New York Times sees it as fantasy for grown-ups, others feel it as dark and cynical. His first novel, Dying of the Light, set the tone for some of his future work. It unfolds mostly on an abandoned planet that is slowly becoming uninhabitable as it moves away from its sun. The story has a strong sense of melancholy. His characters often feel unhappy or at the least unsatisfied, like humans, in many cases holding on to their idealisms in spite of otherwise chaotic and ruthless world. And in many cases, troubled by their own self-seeking actions, even as they undertake them. Many have elements of tragic heroes or anti-heroes in them, reviewer T.M. Wagner. Let's not read it. Wagner writes... Let it never be said that Martin doesn't share Shakespeare's fondness for the senselessly tragic. Okay, senselessly tragic. 
Okay, I'm not going to read any more of this just because, I don't know. Relationship with fans. Martin is known for his regular attendance through the through the decades at science, science fan. Martin is known for his regular attendance through the decades at science fiction conventions and comic conventions and his accessibility to fans. In early 1980s, critic and writer Thomas Ditch identified Martin as a member of the Labor Day group writers who regularly congregated at the annual Worldcon, usually held on or around Labor Day weekend. Since the early 1970s, he has also regularly attended science fiction conventions. Since 1986, Martin has participated annually in Albuquerque's smaller regional convention, Bubanacan, near his New Mexico home. He was invited to be a guest of honor at the 61st World Science Faction Convention in Toronto. Martin regular, actively contributes to his blog, Not a Blog. He still does all his writing on an old DOS machine running WordStar 4.0. Martin's official fan club is the Brotherhoods Without Banners, who have a regular posting board at the forum of the website westeros.org, which is focused on the song Fire and Ice or Ice and Fire Fantasy Series. At the annual World Science Fiction, Fiction Convention, the Brothers Without Banners hosts a large ongoing hospitality suite that is open to all members of Worldcon. The suite frequently wins by popular vote the convention's best party award. Martin has been criticized by some readers for the long periods between books and the Ice and Fire series, notably the six-year gap between the fourth volume, Feast of Crows, and the fifth volume, Dance with Dragons. The previous year, in 2010, in the previous year, 2010, Martin had responded to fan criticism by saying he was unwilling to write only his Ice and Fire series, noting that working on other prose and compiling and editing different book projects has always been part of his working process. The band Dinosaur Feathers published the song Please Please George on December 20, June 23, 2011, asking him to, you know, uh-oh. Martin is opposed to fan fiction, believing in his copyright infringement, and bad exercise for aspiring writers. I don't know if we, we, I don't know if this is fan fiction. More like, no, George, you know, I guess, sorry. Um, personal life, we don't, it's none of our business. Politics, it's none of our business. So that's a little bit about George R. Martin. And then over on his, uh, his blog, it's grrm.livejournal.com, but it, 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 he keeps it active. It's, my, it's worth checking out. Uh, he talks about the Jets. He talks about movies, TV. He talks about his, his books. Uh, Aces Abroad is coming out. That's Wild Card, the, the newest Wild Cards book. So check that out too. And then his uh, little report on George R. R. Martin. All right, next up is Gwendolyn Christie, who play who plays Brienne of Tarth, of course. Who you know, how could we forget that? Gwendolyn Christie is a British accent. This is all Wikipedia as well. She is best known for portraying the warrior Brienne of Tarth in the HBO fantasy drama series Game of Thrones and Lexi in the science f- fiction series Wizards vs. Aliens. Huh. I check that out. Anybody know anything about that? Let me know. In the in film, Christie starred in minor roles in Terry Gilliam films, The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnas, Pana, The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnas, The Imaginarium of 
She starred in Terry Gilliam films, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, right? Dr. Parnassus and the Zero Theorem, and will appear as Commander Lime in The Mockingjay 2, Hunger Games. Whoa, whoa, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Awesome. Congratulations, Grant Gwendolyn. Sorry, I'm doing it on a... And we don't know each other. Anyway, Christy was born in Worthing, West Sussex, and grew up in a hamlet near the South Downs. She trained as a semi-professional gymnast as a child, but a spine injury forced her to abandon that career, and she took up acting. Christy graduated from the Drama Center London in 2005. According to this, she's six foot three. Christy's mentor since high school drama has been actor and author Simon Callow. Her theatrical career includes performances as Queen in Shakespeare's Cymbeline and standing out as Lucifer in Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. On screen, Christy played supporting roles in Terry Gilliam's films, as we said, the BBC production of The Seven Ages of Britain, and the 2012 series Wizards vs. Aliens. Christy's striking height, as we said, attracted the attention of photographer Polly Borland, who made Christie the subject of a notice, notice, noted series of photographs called Bunny between 2008 and 2002. It's supposed to be 2002 to 2008, but I don't want... According to Christie, she felt that the photographs in which she appears mostly nude could come, help her come to terms with her body and challenge notions of femininity. However, she later said she was shocked in retrospect that she had agreed to them. In 2011, Christie was cast as Brienne of Tarth. Her character, an unusually tall, muscular, and plain... Oh, that's not very nice. Plain-looking woman? That's not true, either is a favorite among the readers of the novels, and Christie had been proposed for the role on fan websites long, really, long before auditions took place. Christie said that she could draw on her own experiences of having been bullied for her height and androgynous looks to play the part of Brienne, a role that she was passionate to obtain after reading the songs, after reading a song of Fire and Ice novels to which, which the show adapts. To prepare for the audition, she started wearing unisex clothing to help her get into her character's more masculine mindset, more masculine mindset, and took up an intensive training regime, gaining over a stone. Someone's trying to show off their stone. Uh, 6.4 kilos, 14 pounds of muscle mass. Or maybe that's what she said in that interview. I just didn't hear her. Uh, according to the series co-writer and producer George R. R. Martin, she obtained the role practically without debate after her an arresting audition at which she appeared already made up and costumed as Brienne. After being cast in the role, she prepared for it by taking horsemanship, sword fighting, and stage fighting lessons. Her debut in the second season's third episode was well-received by critics. Nina Shen Rostogai praised her eloquent economical physical performance, noting her walk stance and main, M-E-I-N, May, main, effectively con conveyed Brienne's single-minded devotion to her self-given quest of becoming a knight and to her King Renly. For a role as a Brienne, Christie was nominated for a Saturn Award in 2013 for Best Supporting Actress. In April 2014, Christie was cast in the role of Commander Lime for the final two films in the Hunger Games series. Actress Lily Robb had signed on for the part previously, but had to back out. 
Christie joined the cast of Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens in June 2014. Now that is cool. So that's uh, Gwendolyn Christie. All right, next up is Tommy Dunn, which we're switching up our source material to uh, the Game of Thrones wiki here. Tommy Dunn, D-U-N-N-E. Tommy Dunn is a film and television armorer from Wicklow in the Republic of Ireland. He's the weapons master for the first and second seasons of Game of Thrones. He also worked on the World War II miniseries The Pacific and Band of Brothers and the preceding feature film Saving Private Ryan with executive producers Tom Hank and Steven Spielberg. He worked for the films The Mask of Zorro, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, V for Vendetta, Blood Diamond, The Bourne Ultimatum, Charlie Wilson's War, and Your Highness. He was the armorer for the Iraq War miniseries Occupation. Tommy Dunn made an uncredited appearance as Tommy the Winterfell Barber in Season 1's Winter is Coming, a role which still involved the use of a blade. Oh, cool. He later made an un, another uncredited cameo in Season 4's Two Swords as a Valerian swordsmith who reforges Ned Stark's great sword Ice. So that's Tommy Dunn. He was wicked cool. But you might be asking yourself, what does a weapons master do? Well, well I, you know, I'm not going to... Well, let's find out. What do you say we find out uh, over at Wikipedia, weapons master? The weapons master is sometimes credited as the armorer, weapons specialist, weapons handler, weapons wrangler, or weapons coordinator, is a film crew specialist who works with the property master, director, actors, and script supervisor. The weapons master is specifically responsible for maintaining control of any weapons props including, but not limited to, firearms, knives, swords, bows, and staff weapons. Duties. The weapons master is present whenever a scene with a weapon is to be shot. The present, they pre- present the actor with the weapon just prior to the scene, and they take control of the weapon when the scene is done. It is a primary function of the weapons master to ensure that the weapons under their control do not cause harm to the cast, crew, or production property. Secondary functions include ensuring that the weapons can achieve the director's goal in terms of appearance and function and that they meet the continuity requirements for the production. While some weapons masters work exclusively in film production, others are specialists outside of the media profession who are called in because of their familiarity, licensing, and qualifications with the weapons in question. Some weapons masters, particularly in lower-budget productions, are also responsible for training the actors. Prior to the 1980s, weapons were frequently the responsibility of the property master or his assistants. But since then, it's becoming increasingly common in the industry for the property master to hire a dedicated weapons master in order to reduce the burden on himself or herself. Wikipedia. However, it is still common for the property master to double as a weapons master as a cost-saving measure on productions where NFA-regulated firearms such as machine guns or sawed-off shotguns, are not being used. There's a list of weapons masters throughout the USA and Canada. Gary Harper, in case you guys need one, Francis Smith, Michael Papak, Sid Stembridge, Mike Gibbons, Rick Washburn, Harry Lou, Charlie Taylor, Thel Reed, Bill Davis, Stephen Doc, Bernard, Robert Riley, that's Robert J. Riley, Mike Tristano, John Frenchy Berger, who's retired, 
And then over in Australia, you got John Fox, but we only care about one man, and his name's Tommy Dunn. All right, next up is uh, Simon Brindle, who I had to go to, I went to his uh, IMDb, yeah, who I went to his IMDb page. I believe he was the armorer on season two. And let's just run through his filmography, because whoa boy, the first thing on there is Mad Max Fury Road, which I don't know how many Mad Max fans there are. I mean, especially Road Warrior, one of the best, one of the better action films of all time. And, of course, uh, Thunderdome's got Tina Turner. And the original Mad Max was different. Uh, it hasn't been a while since I've seen it, but uh, it was pretty dark, I think, but but different. And I think Tom Hardy is uh, is, is playing Mad Max, so so that will be cool. He was great. He's great in a lot of stuff. I think he's in a movie right now I've seen on Amazon that I haven't watched is a one word. So if you've seen that uh, movie, Tom, new Tom Hardy movie, let me know if it's good and you know the name of it. Uh, what else was Simon Brindle? This is about Simon Brindle or Tom Hardy, buddy. Sorry, uh, Simon Brindle fan club. Anyway, he's involved in Halo, Nightfall, and FX series. That uh, sorry, came out in 2014, I guess. Guardians of the Galaxy. Thor, The Dark World, Game of Thrones, Wrath of the Titans, Immortals, Anonymous, Your Highness. Uh, Tommy Dunn worked on that. Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, Clash of the Titans, Centurion, The Other Bolin Girl, The Seeker, Teresa, The Fall, The Virgin Queen, Alexander, and A Knight's Tale. And then over at Game of Thrones, uh, Westeros.org. Which is, I guess, another wiki. There's an interview. Uh, I, mean, I think it's from the HBO thing, but uh, uh, it says, I've been waiting for this one. Simon Brindle, the supervisor of the costume armor department, speaks in some detail about the costume armor for HBO's Game of Thrones. I had the pleasure of meeting Simon when I visited the paint hall facilities and had a chance to discuss some of the sources and inspirations for the various suits of armor. And there's some truly amazing work being there's some truly amazing work being turned out from his shop so i don't know if that's the video's not loading and it says there's a lot of quotes from it, the artisan so i don't know if that was a hbo series about the artisans behind game of thrones or that was extra on the dvds or it's on demand i don't i don't have i have uh i don't have uh the company i use for my internet and cable which I'm thinking about cutting the cord. Hopefully when the HBO Go comes out, I don't know if I'll have to do it before then. Uh, if I can get my hands on season three DVDs, I probably will. Uh, but anyway, neither, neither here nor there. Sorry, Simon, I keep stealing your thunder. Another question might come up is the costume department. This is from uh, NBC Universal. Speaking of cable companies, the costume department. The Universal Costume Department offers a multitude of services to costumers and designers for every area of film work, movies, television, commercial videos, and stills. Besides the 27 double-hung rows of rentable clothing and costumes, we offer office space and cage space, walkabout costumes, armor and specialty costumes, women's and men and men's tailoring and dressmaking, a gold room of higher-end clothing, and dressing rooms for fitting actors. Costume projects working out of our office have 24-7 access to their offices and cages, the laundry room, and dye facility. 
Since all of our clients work on a project-to-project basis, we make every effort to keep up with their needs. We have photo areas in our stock room and dressing room so they can get immediate approval on costumes via email. Our staff can help find accessorize can help find and accessorize any outfit efficiently as we offer a large selection of period and modern jewelry and accessories. We are committed to offering remote services by emailing costume pictures to customers working in the field. We have a green screen and gray screen photo areas with dress forms for clean pictures and quick approval. We offer the Edith Head Costume Research Library, which was made possible with a generous donation from the Costume Designers Guild. The collection offers an easy, convenient resource for the costume community to consult fashion periodicals and reference books for a range of time periods. Research assistance is available from the costume department staff. We make it easy to pull costumes, organize purchases, age, dye, launder, break down, and pack, and ship so that your show is ready to go. We hope to become a one-stop shopping experience for designer and costumers. We welcome and cater to commercial and video stylists. The Universal Costume Department receives clothing assets from Universal Features, and we process new acquisitions immediately to augment our clothing and costume stock. We strive to make coming to Universal a comfortable shopping experience. Please come in for a visit. And that was not a paid plug by Comcast Universal. Uh, my heroes, higher, higher heroes than NBC Comcast Universal, than Weiss, Benioff, and Martin. But no, they did not pay me. I'm sorry, how much, how much you can give me? Okay, anyway, moving on. Okay, Alan T- Taylor was the director of one of those episodes, and his name came up, so I had to give him his due. Alan Taylor is an American television and film director, television producer, and screenwriter. Known for his work on such TV shows as Lost, The West Wing, Six Feet Under, Sex in the City, The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Boardwalk Empire, Deadwood, Mad Men, and the films Palookaville and Thor to Dark World, and the upcoming Terminator Genesis. Wow. He's born in 59, doesn't say where, and he's been, it says, years active, 1988 to present. Early life, Alan Taylor is the son of videographer James J. Taylor and curator Mimi Cazort. His sister is indie rock musician Anna Domino. He spent part of his life in Manor Park, Ottawa, Canada, and attended Manor Park Public School and Lisgar Collegiate Institute High School. As part of the communication club at Lisgar, he acted in the production of The Mouse That Roared. He went on to major in history at the University of Toronto and then at the New York City's Columbia University before transferring to NYU to study film under instructors including Martin Scorsese. Or Scorsese. Career. Taylor has directed numerous programs at both television network, television, and premium cable, most often on HBO. Besides television work, he has featured done four feature films, Palookaville, The Emperor's New Clothes, Kill the Poor, and Thor, The Dark World. Taylor joined the crew of the HBO drama. Deadwood is the director for the first season in 2004. The series created by David Milch focused on a growing town in the Old West, one of the better shows of all time. Taylor directed the episode Here Was a Man. He returned to director as the second season in 2005, 
and helmed the episode Requiem for a Gleet. Taylor's directed the pilot directed the pilot episodes of Mad Men and Bored to Death, as well as subsequent episodes of each. He directed two episodes from season one's Game of Thrones and four episodes of season two. Taylor directed Thor the Dark World, the sequel to Thor. He is currently directing the 2015 film Terminator Genesis. And he's married, he has three kids. Now, real quick, what is the difference between a television director and a movie director? Let's just go to Wikipedia for a quick. Television director directs the activities involved in making a television program and is part of a television crew. The duties of a television director may vary depending on whether the production is live or recorded to film, videotape, digital video, or video server. In both types of productions, the director is responsible for supervising the placement of professional video cameras, lighting equipment, microphones, and props. In a dramatic arcs production, the director's role can be similar to that of a film director giving cues to actors and directing the camera placement and movement. In a television show composed of individual episodes, the television director's role may differ from that of a film director in that he or she will usually work only on some television episodes as opposed to being the auteur of the entire production. In an episodic television production, the major creative control will likely reside with the television producers of the show. The television producer with creative control is called the showrunner. So that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. Responsibilities, other than quickly calling out commands, the television director is also expected to maintain order among the staff in the control room set when elsewhere. A new studio might have multiple cameras and a few camera movements. In a sports broadcast, the director might have 20 or 30 cameras and must continually tell each camera operator what to focus on. When the director is, is responsible for specific shots and other production elements, the producer typically seated behind the director in the second row of chairs in the control room, coordinates a big picture, including commercial breaks and the running lengths of the show. So that's not a very good scope of what the people like Alan Taylor are probably having to do, but it gives you a little bit of a more general idea. All right, uh, another uh, interesting article I found, not, not that it has to do with every director of a Game of Thrones episode, but a lot of people are like, oh, this is kind of like a new golden age of TV the last few years. And we've talked about it before. Like, when did it start? The Wire, Deadwood, Sopranos, and did it just lead into this? Or was there like that one and then another? I don't know. I'm not a, um, what are they called? Pop culture gadfly TV. You know, I'm not, t- this isn't TV talk. We're just talking, I mean, we're here talking about TV. But uh, so I found this article on The Guardian. Uh, it's called, uh, or from the Zerber, you know, from the Guardian, uh, television, the Observer, silver screen to small screen, why film directors are taking over TV. And this talks about True Detective, which, whoa boy, if you haven't seen that, uh, do yourself a favor. After the, sex success, after the success of True Detective, award-winning filmmakers are being lured to TV with the promise of more creative control. Does this herald a new golden age for viewers? This is written by Edward Helmore in New York, uh, March 15, 2014. There was a time when American movie stars and big-ticket directors wouldn't touch TV. Now, thanks to hit series such as True Detectives, not only movie actors but major Hollywood directors are flocking to the small screen. 
The critical and commercial success of the series starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson currently in fourth, its fourth of eight episodes in Britain heralds a potential TV revolution in which a series is created in one block by a single feature film director, in this case, Kerry Fukunaga. I don't want to say his name. Yeah, Kerry Fukunaga. I hope I'm saying his name right. He's from Oakland, believe it or not. So mad props to Kerry, uh, maker of the 20, 2011 adaptation of Jane Eyre starring Michael Fassbender. Movie directors have flirted with TV for years, but they've typically only done the first episode, explains producer Richard Brown. TV is made fast but often lacks the tools of cinema. With True Detective, we wanted to bring more cinema into TV to find the sweet spot between film and TV. The series represents a shift in creative control. Typically in TV, directors are subservient to writers and producers. The reverse is true in film. So this is what we've been talking about tonight. But in this series, says Scott's born Brown, one of six producers on the show, including McConaughey and Harrelson, the creative control is more equitably weighted. In film, script writers typically have their work turned over to more writers for rewrites. But in True Detective, Nick's, Nick Palazzo wrote the entire series with McConaughey and Harrelson already cast. Wow. Already cast as a troubled Louisiana State Police Detective Rustin Rust Cole and his partner Martin Marty Hart, who is caught in the throes of a midlife crisis. The production team also came out of feature films, not TV. These behind-the-camera creative arrangements may seem like details that only entertainment industry people could appreciate, but True Detective is now a worldwide hit in the next stage of McConaughey's much-acclaimed McCognizance. Oh, they call it McConaughey. I, I, I had a G in there. McConaughey. McCognizance. Yeah. I guess that would be like metacognition. Uh, so if he becomes... Uh, you can tell the future would be a McCognizance, but it's just a McConaissance. Oh, okay. This year, he swept the board at the U.S. award ceremonies for his role in Dallas Buyers Club, including Bess Oscar, his hard-to-follow acceptance speech, and trademark Texas-drawled catchphrase, all right, all right, all right, have provided weeks of media parody. For the other sex symbol of the series, Harrelson, the show has also been a significant career boost. Really, I don't, I don't take it because I don't think Woody Harrelson or Matthew McConaughey needed a career boost. I think it was more of a career choice. Maybe it was proven to be a great choice. But they need one of them. I think they're both in a stage where they can pretty much do what they want. Um, may, I don't my, my opinion. That's just my opinion. Showbiz and media writers predict that True Detective is a forerunner of a new era in TV drama. Writer-producer shows such as The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and The Wire may slowly give way to the director-led format. Oh, wow, this is, a, this is great we found this article. Because we've been talking about the show, writer as a showrunner a little bit. It feels like big feature directors are seeing a way to do TV whereas they weren't able to in the past because their role was somewhat diminished, says Brown, who got a start in the music business as a talent scout before going on to produce music videos for directors such as Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry. Something like a true detective where the director is responsible for the whole series and the entire aesthetic vision 
offers them a way in. It presents established film directors with the possibility of telling longer stories which go deeper into character than is possible in film. David Fincher, director of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and The Social Network, made the initial two episodes of Netflix's remake of BBC's House of Cards and is now making a series called Utopia for HBO. Guillermo del Toro, director of Pan's Labyrinth, created a series, TV series called The Strain. Oliver Stone made The Untold History of the United States about the unreported but critical events since the Second Civil War for the U.S. cable channel Showtime. Oh, I never heard of that. Robert Redford is making documentaries for CNN. The day after Steven Soderbergh announced his retirement as a movie director in Cannes last year, he teamed up with Clive Owens to make The Nick, a 10-hour period drama set in New York's Knickerbocker Hospital, produced by the company behind True Detective. The shift is noticeable in the economics of the entertainment business. Since the 2007-2008 film writers' strike, there's been a 35% fall in the number of writers working in film. The number of major studio films released declined from 168 to, in 2008 to 128 in 2012. Employment in television has rebounded in the same period. TV writers have record earnings for last year up 10%. Thanks in part to writing fees from cable programs and services such as Netflix, the total employment is marginally up on pre-strike figures. The New York Times media commentator David Carr wrote last week that TV's resurgence was evident at the Oscars where a daytime talk show host Ellen DeGeneres treated Hollywood A-listers to a dose of talk TV complete with pizza, selfies, and tweets. In Carr's reading, DeGeneres treated incandescent celebrities as if they were regular people. That mirrors a similar drive in TV to present authentic lives, not fantasy characters. Hmm. I don't know about this. And that, in turn, has brought TV drama with complex plot and flawed characters, the first-class cultural currency it has lacked. Bacar also worries that these small-screen riches have detracted from the written word and social interaction. Oh, boy, this guy, I don't know. (laughs) He noted that while TV viewing is up, other media outlets such as magazine publishing continue to lose readers and viewers. TV, he says, is an always-on ecosystem of immense riches that leaves me feeling like that leaves me feeling less like the master of my own universe and more as if I am surrounded. That doesn't face actors and filmmakers who are in the middle of what some call the golden age of television, enjoying ever longer amounts of screen time. With a new trend for on-demand binge viewing, watching several episodes consecutively, and bypassing TV altogether to buy direct from streaming services such as Netflix, filmmakers are now enjoying relaxed controls on distribution. Moreover, streaming services such as Netflix are not bound by viewing figures. Their only concern is to sell more subscriptions, and that's opening up new opportunities. The downside of binge-watching may be that the suspense built over weeks leading to the season finale is lost. Netflix has opened up a new space, says Brown. It's going to drive innovation and competition with other channels, and I think TV and cinema will continue to move closer together. As True Detective passes the halfway mark of its eight-episode UK run, fans may be already wondering if second season, if a second series starring McConaughey and Harrelson is in the works. It isn't, at least with not with those actors following that storyline. Film actors don't want to sign on to endless series, and the story of Cole and Hart is concluded at the series' end. That is how we were able to get movie stars, says Brown. Carrie Fukunaga is a director they wanted to work with, and it was an event. 
They don't have to come back to do series four, five, and six. So that's an interesting article. And it opens up a debate, but you guys should be asleep, so there's you know, no, no debate needed. It does, a, I think I brought up my cord-cutting possibility. And this kind of plays into, like, the question of, like, should I give up cable? I, got, I don't have a smart TV, but I got one of those Amazon sticks. And I've been playing around with it. And I'm like, man, do I need some? I need some NBA, but there's NBA League Pass, and then uh, you know I watch a couple over the air shows that I could use the antennas for, or one maybe over the air show. But I don't know. But then you get the internet from the same company as a cable company. I don't. So, um, but interesting stuff about the showrunner as a writer or the showrunner as a director. I think as a TV viewer, it's good for us to have both. So, uh, thanks. Hello, hello. This is Tommen, Prince Tommen, Lord Tommen, your your, uh, talker. And I'm here with the cat who is more caring than a a so-called scepter in charge of caring for a boy could be. And he's also... More nicer than a, a, a servant whose who's mother told the servant, who was specifically told by a mother to be extra nice and did not, but said, Well, no, I don't, she, she, she won't believe this. I don't know. Anyway, he's the best friend a boy could ever have. He's a cat, and his name is Sir Pounce. And I happen to have the honor of being his best friend, the best friend a cat's ever had. Right? He's looking at me. He's amused. Uh, Tommen, the best friend. Sir Pounce is the best friend, and Sir Pounce is my best friend. And I'm so happy to hear you were telling a tale about just us. A tale of Sir Pounce's quest to set a boy free. A boy who was a... Uh, what did he do? He was... There was a milkmaid girl, and she went missing, and Joff said the stable boy did it. And Sir Pounce said, oh, no, 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 Joff had something against the milkmaid and the stable boy, but they were separate. And he said, Shut up. Shut up. Set up, he said. And Sir Pounce believes that Joff uh, is the one who may have uh, hidden. He said put, He said she she went to live on a farm, Sir Pounce said. He said the milkmaid now lives on a farm. I said, what? which farm? And he said, far, far away. I said, in High Garden, one of, I've heard they have many farms there. And he, he said, yes. And I said, well, one day Mother said she will send me to High Garden forever. So maybe what what, what is the name of the farm? And he said, whatever, we need a... So he said, uh, we you know, we've been working with this boy, Anan. Anan. He lives, he's in the dungeon, which happens to just be below my room. So we can, and he says, hey, Tom, and I'm worried. This was the other day. He said, I'm so, he was crying. And at first I thought it was the sound of my own tears, because I said, oh, that must be the echo of my sadness. That I, because once someone said, you, I hear you're crying all night long, Tom. And that was the servant who was uh, supposed to be nice to me. Crying for chocolate chips, crying for baked goods, crying, crying, crying. I hear it all the time. So it means nothing to me, she said. But anyway, the boy is crying. I said, what's what's the matter? And he said, well, my trial's coming up, Tommy. He said, what, what will we do? What, what, what is the plan? And I said, well, we figured out that you're probably right, 
that you, you're innocent because we figured, remember, I broke the case, as they say, and figured out that there's no way. What did I figure? There's like too far to walk. It was a different direction. There was no way you were going in a different direction. Or Joff was uh, the milkmaid. Would she know? Oh, that was it. The milkmaid would have no reason to walk by. And I told, so I told Joff about this the other day in the hall when he glared at me. And I said, we're going, that milkman, milk. and he said, what are you blubbering about, blubber boy? And I said, uh, oh, and, and he said, now you're blubbering. And then he said, well, did you spill the goods about my case? I said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. Sir Pounce said that uh, you will be fine. And he said, well, so he said, that we're in a, well, will there be a trial? And I said, of course there's a trial. There's a big trial tomorrow for for Joff will make a speech, and then Joff will decide if he agrees with himself. Well, I guess you could say something, too. And he said, well, what about all this investigation? Won't you be defend? Won't someone be coming to my defense? And I said, hmm, I thought this was just a game. The game, uh, justice. Me and Sir Pounce. It was like imagination. I mean, I know you're real, and you're talking to me now. I know you're talking to me and you're real, so, uh, but, I, you know, I, and he said, oh, I, he goes, I need someone to speak on my behalf. And I said, well, uh, I said, well, I said, well, that be Sir Pounce. And he said, Sir Pounce, your cat cannot speak to the court. Your cat cannot speak. And he said, I thought Sir Pounce was a figment of your mind, Tommen. Are you sure? And I said, a figment of my mind. Oh, what a, what a concept. Where? What is this boy speaking of? And he said, Tom, and I need you to speak for me on my behalf. What, what will you say? And I said, well, so you need me to help you? And he said, yes, please, Tom, please. And I said, hmm. And Sir Pounce looked at me and nodded. And he looked, you know, the hole we speak through is called a, uh, it's a chamber pot hole. So it's a little gross getting too close to it. But, you know, I make the girl scrub it so... And I say, scrub it out, scrub it out. Mother says I'm dirty on the inside, so I need to be sure not to touch my own filth. And so anyway, he, I said, oh, and so, so speak. And he said, yes, pretend you're speaking tomorrow about about me and how I'm innocent. We, we probably should practice all night. And I said, okay, well, um, okay. So what I, I, I get afraid a little bit because I'm I'm afraid... People will see me and see my insides. Like I said, it's, mother said I'm bad on the inside or something's wrong. And he said, so, Mom, you just need to, he said, he said many nice things. And I said, why are you being so nice to me? Because your life is on the line. And he said, well, partially, Tommy, but I've grown to like you, even though, even with all the things you put me through, with calling me over the hole and then peeing on my head, or pooping, or you said, oh, don't worry, I won't do either, and then you threw down your scraps, and you said, no meat on those bones. I, I got it all off first, and then I I expired, passed out. Anyway, we, we talked for a long, and then I said, okay, and I started to think to myself, the look in Sir Pounce's eye stirred something in me. That, you know, I sat down, and I thought, and then the boy said, oh, please stop, Tommy. Oh, what did you eat? But I thought, I said, oh, I could do this. If Sir Pounce believes in me, and Anan believes in me, 
I could send this justice. So I said to I said, okay, I'm going. I said, Joffrey, may I speak on his behalf, uh, this man, you know, this young man's behalf? And I and so I imagine mother looking surprised and Joff looking surprised. And I said, yes, mother, it's time for me to speak up for justice, for I know you have two sons and two eyes and one daughter and one heart. But not necessarily that those are related. Mother once said, Joffrey, that innocence on a pike is the innocence she likes. And I tend to wonder, the longer I'm away from that saying, what it does mean when I say, is it mean? And in, in what is in our hearts? And and then he interrupted me. He said, you got to be more specific, Tom. And Joffrey used to say, quiet. you got to hook him. And I said, oh, hook him like how? He said, like one of those, you know, when you talk about uh, the stories you tell yourself when Sapounce isn't there, you know, when you say the tales of Tommen, the toughest boy that's ever, you know, I've I've heard you talking, Tommen, I know. I said, oh, you've heard my stories. And he said, oh, yes, I have, the the fiction you make up about the, and I said, well, we were okay, well, now we're talking. I said, okay, Joffrey. Mother, I'm here to speak for justice, and I won't have any of your bandering about or any interruptions. And, Grandfather, I do love you so, but your eyes are colder than the floor after a cold morning, colder than it against my bottom, when I, very cold eyes, so you can fix them on me quizzically. Wonder why I'm speaking. Well, I'm speaking because I was curious about something. And then Anand said, don't say anything about pounce. Pretend, you know, that'll ruin your credibility. I said, okay, okay. I said to myself when when I heard about this uh, milkmaid and Joffrey saying that she had gone away and that the uh, this young man was behind it, I said, something's not right here. And I began to wonder why... What a boy who lives in a stable, who the, he's, the rumor is the girls call him King Dong. Uh, nothing like King Joffy, they say. He, this is the, the stable boy's King Dong. Why would he, you know, why would he take an angry turn at anyone? What would he have to gain for? He has a, a job at the stable, working hard. Within the castle, many people like him, many people love him. Many people say he's the greatest stable boy we've had since that stable boy. That worked for the Targaryens. That was known as the greatest stable boy we ever had till he was... Anyway, why? what would he have to gain by messing with this milkmaid? And I began to wonder, well, if he didn't have anything to gain... What, what, what did happen to the milkmaid? One, we know she is not here with us. Is that correct? We can all agree upon that. Grandfather, do you agree? Mother? Joffrey, you look so... You look, uh... You look disgusted. And, uh... I've seen that look before, Joff, when looking across the room one time, when I asked for a larger glass of milk, you know, someone brought it to me. 
and they turned them back to you as they poured my milk. Does that remind you of anything, Joffrey? Any one in particular? Because it was that same look. A look of anger, of hatred, I'd say. Of uh, evil. Excuse me, my king. I'm speaking out of turn. Mother? You sighed there. Why would you sigh? Was it a nervous sigh? For I'd like to uh, tell everyone that uh, the king had said that uh, what had happened was the milkmaid walked by the stables and the stable boy was cross with her some lover's quarrel because he's such a lowly stable boy and she loved the king so. And he was jealous on a way to fetch some milk, but the strange thing is the milk... Uh, he's not on the way to the stables. And I, and, and I happen to be followed by a cat. You know, many of you may know I have a cat, so pounce as I call him, you know, in jest and such in jest. Uh, we walked that way and we couldn't just make, we couldn't make a work job. There was no way she was seen here and there within the time and in the stable boy. He was working on, uh, some Marin's horse or some such thing I cannot remember. But it, it doesn't work out. But I can remember the hound. The, hello, hound. You're, you're, you're looking amused, like you could crush me like a bug. Well, I have a question for you, hound. Where were you that day? Don't snort at me, sir. You, you could have been uh, there, walking. Giant foot, what size boot do you wear, Sir Hound? Do you have a, you, oh, he was with you, King, my King. Well, okay. Well, I, uh, I, I, I have to say, this just doesn't make any sense. It makes me question what, so it makes me wonder what brand of justice we're searching for. If we're searching for convenient justice and quick justice, then I guess the facts, they just don't matter where. The milk is fetched. Who stares in anger and who has nothing to gain and everything to lose? Uh, I guess those things don't matter anymore. And I guess a kingdom like that, you'd say, well, would I want to live in a kingdom where justice is just a whatever one person decides? And maybe the wisest person in the kingdom, my brother. Maybe someone so wise and uh, and so uh, quick, quick, quick to decision, but but anyway, just my opinion, but the fact remains that uh, the facts don't add up, and I think we live in, now, Father, Grandfather, if uh, if uh, a kingdom called and they said, well, uh, we, we, we do owe the Lannisters this much gold, but we believe that even though you said all the gold, we, we brought the gold there, it uh, was delivered there, in your vaults, even though your vaults weren't there at all, what would you say? Does that confuse you, Grandfather? Because it confuses me. Oh, b- believe me. So, in summary, I would just like to say, let's clear this man. This boy's innocent. Is he going to be innocent on a pike? The kind of innocence we will grow to like? Or is he going to be innocent? Because he already has been innocent. 
and oh, oh, my stomach is. Excuse me. Um, I, 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 uh, I need to take a break because I'm, I'm getting nervous. How, how did I do? How did I do on on? And he said, "Oh, Tom, and you were, were, and so pounce." He was lying there, catatonic, staring at me, purring, his eyes wide, like he was being petted by a thousand petters. And I said, what is Sapounce? Are you okay? Sapounce, are you okay? And Sapounce leapt and he danced about. And I, I said, Sapounce, what has happened? What has happened to you, Sapounce? And he, li- he licked my, licked my, uh, he licked my earlobe. And I said, Sapounce. And I, I said, I don't, I, my stomach hurt. And my head went flush. How, how, and Anand said, just, can you do that again, Tom? And, but with a closing, you just need a closing. And I said, I'm sure I could. I remember, yes, uh, innocence on a pike. Well, yeah, I could do it. I will do it tomorrow for, for your trial. I will be there to stand for you in words for justice. And so that was the, uh, the then I said, well, I got a tummy ache. I got to lie down. And this is a real time, so I do have such a stomach ache. I felt like I went to a land. I, I think I was in a dream. Mother was looking at me, and I felt something respect, I believe. So maybe, and grandfather even said, he looked at me in anger. But he said, this is a boy who has become a man. In the dream, he said that to me. And mother said, oh, Tom, and maybe you should be king. And I said, Mother, well, Jaffa's king, but, you know, king and neighbor, and we had a laugh at Jaffa's And I said, I've shared a laugh with my mother. That is all I've ever wanted for my whole life. And so, I, I, yeah, my stomach hurts, so I need to lie down. Thank you. So, Pounce and Tommen, we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. It's time, 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 time for some prayers. Miller, Smith. Barky, Jester, Crone, sweet, sweet Crone, mother of all. Well, I don't know. Well, there is the mother, so maybe you're not the mother. Are you the grandmother of the gods? Or the wise? I know you're the wisest of the wise of the wizened and the non-wizened. And maybe even the wizard. Crone, um, sorry to get my prayer off on a, you know, uh, inquiry, but that's maybe part of prayers. His inquiry, you know, without answers thus far, uh, my prayers have come in answers more mysterious than a dream or being hit on the head by, you know, you know, none of it makes any sense. But anyway, that's not a criticism, just an observation. Anyway, crone, what was my question? Oh, wizard's crone. You know, we're jumping around the times as we scoot around this universe created by George R. R. Martin. What? what we're in season, we just finished up season two last week, and I was wondering what you thought about those wizard guys. Not, not, you know, they drink the, uh, what do they call it, the shade of the, not, do they drink nightshade? Is that what they're drinking? I can't remember now. It'll come to me. They seem to be, um, you know, in a different way, like uh, a poor genetic. We could use a geneticist in here in Westeros. Because, you know, these guys, they seem to, you know, be split, you know, clones, possibly, or clone-like, or I'm just confused, and it's just like the mirror, what does they call it, um, mirror, magic mirror spell. I get, even in the other podcasts where there were spells, I get mixed up as a magic mirror is a portal 
or a mirror image of you. I think it's a mirror image of you. You should have both sides. So then you get shot uh, maybe one out every three times, possibly, until the hit point. I don't know. Are there hit points on the – or is it a duration? No idea. Anyway, Crone, sorry to confuse you, but I'm just wondering what, what you think about these wizards. And are you the – are they playing, praying to the Crone? Um you know, I can't uh, judge you based on your follow. Well, maybe I can judge you based on your followers. Whew, that's a loaded question, Crone. And I don't want to, you know, I'm just here to praise your names. Evil wizards pray to you. Or, you know, hateful. Are they hateful wizards? They certainly seem a bit greedy, greedy, uh, power hungry. And what are they planning on doing with that? What are they planning on doing with that magic anyway? Crone, you should know that as you know. Do you know the future exactly or you have like a vague idea? And is it like, um, you know, for some reason that movie, uh, what's that called? Oh, I think John August wrote that movie or part of it, worked on that movie. And I just mentioned him recently. And now I can't even think of the name. It's got uh, Tom Cruise in it. I want to say Total Recall, but it's not. But that guy from Total Recall's in it, the Irish guy. Colin uh, Ferguson is what I want to say, but that's not his name. And he's a big star, so I should know his name right off the top of my head. Uh, or Monday, Mission Monday, that's not it. Sorry, Crone, I don't mean to be wasting my prayer time with you, but it's really a mo- uh, future crime was the, the thing. But anyway, I can't remember. They had the, uh, you know, the, uh, Precogs in the water, and they would just say, you know, like, okay, dog running, uh, ball, red, red, red ball, red ball lost, car coming, red ball, oh, dog licking self, licking self again, dog licking. Um, and so I think that's how it worked. So I don't know if you are you pre, you, you're, you're like, I'm not trying to offend you, Crone. Anyway, reason I'm so uh, lackadaisical, or is that, or um, uh, torpid? I don't even I have no clue what torpid means, but I thought I'd throw that out there. Is that I'm, I'm not even sure that's a word. T o r p i d torpid. I use it in a sentence. I'm feeling you know I'm today's prayers are a bit torpid because we're on you know we're on a break here, Chrome. You know. And that was my main message to all the gods, Crone especially, because you're so, uh, you know, you're kind of the, you're the point person in my prayers, Crone, let's be honest. You know, they say with his wisdom comes age, or with age comes wisdom. Plus you are, hmm, are you the only official god I'm praying to? But, you know, for, 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 no, Miller, you're a god, right? Or no. There's mother, father, stranger, Crone. I think they have seven gods. That's only four. Maiden, of course. Warrior, Smith. Smith, you're a god, maybe. Or Smith. Yeah, which is BS. I mean, not that you're you're not that that uh, you know, why create a god to serve? And then what is a maiden's job? Like, is she supposed to be just working for the mother? And then Crone, what are you you know watching the kids while the father and the mother? run around a war well, anyway no politics aside god politics are the you know worst 
Well, the worst, the last thing we want to talk about is politics and religion and, uh, you know, you know, divisive stuff like that. But we can't really avoid it either. But anyway, the main thing is we're on vacation this week. I mean, well, I'm not. I'm stuck here in Westeros because uh, I, uh, my ruins died down of Roose Bolton just because I haven't heard, you know, heard his gravelly voice and seen his steely face and his son Ramsey in a while. But don't worry, now I'm picturing them, my ruining. Is rue you, Roos Bolton? Yes, I rue you, Roos. Okay, I got it. I got it down. So I'll be able to get the fantasy fiction. Anyway, gods, it's a week between shows. Made me curious, you know, La is La Bonita. It's where the music plays and where the sun touches the tides. Sink through your ears and through your eyes. Uh, Westeros Lullaby. And uh, that's by uh, Madonna. Not Madonna, uh, the mother Madonna, um, a singer named Madonna. But as, as we're here in our like, relaxing aisle of respite, I just want to check in and know what you guys like to do. And I guess that's what would be, if you're a god, are you always on call? I mean, I guess it depends on how good of a god you are. Like, if Because you're always on call, people are probably, oh, it's like a customer service line. Hey, 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 hey Smith, uh, you up there? Uh, my uh, nephew got too close to the water wheel again, and it's jammed. And his parents are going to be mad at me. Can you get me out of this? And because uh, it's you know I'm pulling as hard as I can. Uh, thank you, Miller. Uh, some mill owner out. But then you could just decide, you know, if you want to take the call. What happens to a prayer if no one hears it? You know, Barky, they say that it's a famous but trite saying, if we find what trite meant, um, if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? And I'm sure there's an answer to that that I don't know. I mean, like, because sound is waves, so of course it makes sound waves. But if there's no one there to interpret the sound waves into a sound, I think that's what they mean. But then you get in a whole nother layer of it. I, I think, I don't know if this is probably smart people know how to discuss this stuff, but it'd be like, well, what is the sound of a tree falling? Well, one, do bees have ears? Do insects have ears? I don't know the answer to that. Two, what does a bear think? It's like, oh, hey, that's a tree falling. Or a person might be like, oh, gosh, is that a bear? And a rabbit might be like, oh, time to run, time to run, uh, time to run. Or maybe they just be like, oh, that was a tree because they're so sent. They got those big ears, uh, big rabbit. This is the kind of stuff we can talk about on a week off, you know, God's just sitting around. My legs are crossed. I got some warm tea. Ideally, I'd have a fire. Actually, I don't have uh, warm tea. I have uh, well, warm, t- warm, tepid water, not torpid water. So, uh, yeah, so that's the tree thing. What was my point? Was I was talking about sound. Hmm. Oh, the prayers. So they go up there. Do you guys have like some sort of uh, prayer collection system? PCS, prayer collection system. Um, with like a C- CMS, they call that content management system. Do people sell stuff to gods? I mean, like in the afterlife, is somebody like, hey, if you can get me out of this... Uh, you know, 
this part of uh, whatever you guys, I think you guys still call it the seven hells. It'd be like, hey, man, you know, I'm kind of at the top level here. It still sucks. You know, I got I got this whole prayer management system I can get you guys so you could just kick back. You know, if any of you are dating humans or non-humans alike, you know, and you're busy, you could just, you know, let the prayers go and you can still get back to it just in case there's a prayer, you know, that you want to get back to or you're waiting to hear from somebody about some uh, earthly work they're supposed to be doing. Or, you know, like, hey, my statue of you is done. Hey, reporting, this is the snitch reporting in uh, Red Woman's burning effigies of you, just telling on her uh, over and out, prayer out. Because those are the kind of things you wouldn't want to, I mean, or maybe you're like, hey, dummy, we're gods. We're just aware of those things. Your mind can't, you know, I, well, I'm just pitching, like, I'm just pretend. I'm imagining I'm a salesperson uh, in this top seven hell, which will be like, what? I don't know. I don't know about your hells. Hex. Some people don't like hell. Hex, they call it. Um, freck, frick, frack, fuck. Uh, those are all different. I remember, I don't know, you guys didn't watch Battlestar Galactica, but they would have wanted to be, you know, be their sailors in some sense. And sailors swear, but it was on the, t- oh boy, the censorship, you guys, or what is it called? It's not censorship, it's like... Uh, Practices and standards. I don't know. It's not censorship because you have to do it. But uh, they couldn't really swear on the show. Nowadays, about 10, 5, 10, let's see, 7, 7, 8 years later after that show, you can probably swear more. But they so they would say fracking, frack. Before, this was pre, talk about precock. They didn't even know about fracking yet. I, I don't even think fracking had come out till maybe they named fracking. No, that's hydraulic fracturing, so fracking. I'm just fracking around with the maiden on the corner. I'm just fracking around because I'm on a ship. Sorry, I didn't mean to sing, gods, but, you know, I'm uh, no gender. Anyway, so at first it was distracting. They'd be like, hey, get the frack over here. But then you were like, you know. A lot of times on other episodes, I talk about, um, you know, being a good, you know, going to movies and taking your leap of faith or whatever they call it, suspending. I never know if it's suspense of belief or suspending your disbelief. I guess it would be suspending your disbelief Um, where with you guys, it's like upending. No, pending my beliefs. No. So suspending, no, I don't know what it is with you. But anyway, whew, point, point was in there. Bop, bop, bang and fracking around with the gods up in your seven heavens. You guys got seven heavens up there? Because if there's seven hells, there probably should be seven heavens. But then it's like, why would you have seven? He- that would be a ripoff, right? Well, you'd be like, oh, I'm in the first heaven, this there's six more that are better than that. Just create envy, and then you'd probably get sent back down to one of the seven hells. So, a pro tip, gods only one heaven. I call them pro am tips, though, gods, because I'm not exactly a pro at much. Well, professional, professionally pray. I'm, I'm getting this prayers down. I don't know how many times I've prayed to you guys, probably about 33 prayers. I'm guessing, uh at least minimum, 
and my heart prays to you guys minute, you know, minute by minute. So every heartbeat is a prayer, they say here. Uh, I do because it, it is true. So I, you guys owe me about a billion. Oh, boy, I got distracted, guys, because it's vacation. Oh, well, no, no, we don't really have that much time because I've been praying. Crone, I don't know if you're still awake, but I don't know what you do if you don't have anything to do. Like, what if they suspended all human operations for a week? They said, uh, you know, if I was in charge, I'd do that for you guys. If I was like, um, like you know, maybe I wouldn't be a god. I'd be like, um, you know, GMS, God Management System. And I'd be the manager of that. And uh, or Godheads, right? We talked about Godheads last week. Godhead Management System. This is the Godhead Manager uh, just so you know, a week of uh, Feb- second week of February, spending all human operations. So you know, Westeros will be in a state of uh, uh, pause, or you know, not frozen solid, but you know, tough to describe. Moving at so slow a rate that only two, three, fr- one frame a day will move. So, gods, you take it easy uh, this week. You know. Rest in R&R. You need two weeks, just let me know. I can, you know, slow it down further. What would you guys do? First of all, don't, this is just me doing it for you. I don't expect anything in return at all. Uh, the honor of pausing the world for you is honor, and especially Maiden if you're not busy. Whew, two weeks, if you know, you and me and you. La is la bonita. You know, you could actually, if you Maiden... If I got you a picture of that, could you dress like that with your hair? There's like a it's like a spider web type thing to hold your hair up in a little uh, bobby bun. I don't even know what to call it. I don't know what color she had her hair in in that video, but it was you know. And then you could we could sing. You could sing. And they say time for siesta. But first, let's dine in the maiden and I will spend two weeks in love. Because if a girl loves a boy, then a boy loves a maiden. There you go, maiden. I made that, you know. Oh, sorry. You know, I'm not praying to you officially because you know, take my calls. You, you got a god, goddess management system up there? Anyway, God, so that would be the crone. You'd probably, if you, I don't understand the retirement system anyway, but what would you do, crone? You could check up on the billions of grandkids you have and say, oh, here you go. Here's, you know, we could get some penny. I don't know what the Westeros penny is. That would be fun. Me and you, crone, giving out pennies and then laughing. We could leave and then watch through the window and watch the kids cry. Pennies and sweaters we could hand out or uncomfortable shoes. What about wooden shoes, Crone? Anyway, think about that. Miller, I don't know what you'd do. Would you go like gluten and wheat free? Grain free weeks for a vacation? Uh, I mean, seriously, man, I'm watching out for your health. I mean, I don't do that, but I hear it's popular. Honestly, every third person I've talked to, hey, me and especially people that are in relationships but aren't married, they're big on like wheat free. Gluten-free, you know, a lot of people have a gluten. That's a real thing. But, it, hey, we're going wheat-free, man. Me and uh, Shelly here, we're so in love that we're, we're not eating wheat this month. 
I'm like, oh, great, your sex life's uh, dried up, huh? <laughs> great. Anyway, God, so there's no reason for me to shame relationship wheat shaming. I shouldn't be wheat-free shaming or sugar-free. That can be another one. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, now that I've made fun of it, Miller, it's kind of pointless for you to try it. But seriously, you're looking slightly, in my imagination, you're looking slightly better than awesome. I mean, you know, because you're a god, I don't need to be smoted by any, you know, mill ground. I don't want to be mill ground. We've talked about it before. Uh, Smith, you'd obviously want to do something probably without sweat. Maybe take, maybe you should get a, you know, you need a uh, swimming hole. We'll get you a nice swimming hole with rope swing. Uh, you could do it country cool, you know, swing, swim, get you a couple of earth girls, you know, Westerosi ladies. I don't know what, you know, as long as it's on the up and up, you know, I don't do Baratheon style um, stuff. Uh, what else? Jester, your life is a vacation, so let's not kid each other. Maybe you could take it serious for a week or two because you have a serious side, um, you know. Roll some vengeance. You probably, I mean, I know you're, yeah, that's it. You're just, you're jester, except for these two, one or two weeks a year. The Ides of February or something. I'm not sure what the Ides part is of March, but we'll do, you know, the tides, the bides, the abides of February, zides, wides. Anyway, um, who was it? Barky up there. Barky, man. Phew. I why did I, you know, all that stuff I gave you? No worries. You'll we'll have a, uh, you know, a lot of libraries do a uh, immunity week, or what I think they call it, where you're, you we won't, you know, just bring everything back. Uh, no questions asked. Even if you drop the DVD player in a swamp, or the iPods, or whatever else I forgot, I've left you so much stuff. Um, you know, just get it back to me. No questions asked, you know, all fines removed. A lot of times you got to bring some canned goods, which would be nice for, well, there's no can openers in Westeros that I know about, so that'd be a bad idea. You know, it's vacation week. Maybe we could do, guys, what do you guys think about this? I'll finish up with this. A lot of times I talk, you know, I love game shows. But I, used to, I don't have any time to watch game shows anymore. I wish I did. That's what we, what if we get together couple not watch some game shows because they have like cruise week um and stuff like that i was i was in the hospital well i wasn't in the hospital but i had you know emergencies as we well you know about it yeah it's other people and there's a lot of um prices raised real popular in the hospital that's like got to be one of the top hours of the day in the hospital so we watch all prices right and, um, you know, then we'll have some God-style games, you know, not Olympics, like, uh, well, Maiden, I mean, oh boy, gym, you know, if you can get some gymnastics down, that'd be helpful. Uh, uh, but uh, now I'm distracted again. But anyway, we'll play some game shows. Uh, where's the groan, you know? Da, 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 do, 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 do. Where's the crone? Welcome to Where's the Crone, where we try to find out where the crone went. And then, crone, you could giggle. It'd be like a little bit like this game Marco Polo. 
we'll, we'll blindfold all. Look, I don't know. Can we blindfold gods? You guys got other senses. We'll figure out something. Um, let's see. We could see. Uh, I don't know. I'll think it's going to take me a while. I'll think of game game shows for gods and Westeros. But that's it, gods. I hope you're enjoying the future time. If you you know if you want me to do this. Technically, you'd have to hire me and give me magical powers. Well, I don't even want magical powers. I want actual, like, uh, uh, supernatural powers. What are god powers called? I want you guys to toss me a god head. I'll put it on my shoulder, but not like a second head, like an invisible god head type thing. Or like a god head. um, Yeah, I could use a staff. How about that? Imbue that staff with the power to give you guys vacation. And that's it. I'll be on my God, GMS, God Manager, God, God, God and Goddess, G and GMS, God and Goddess Management System. And this is it. In humble servitude, only wishing you R and R of the most, uh, you know, restful and relaxive states. And, uh, and then may all your, I mean, when you're a God, does it get dull? Well, I guess that's why you guys mess with us, because otherwise it gets so boring. Because you get Get what you really want. You can try, try. Really want. You could try, try, try. So try to make me, uh, you know, give you guys a vacation. All right, that's all I want for you guys. I don't want anything in return. I desire things in return, but I'm not expecting it, of course, because. <laughs> so you know, and if you want to send me some, um, you know, answer that doesn't make any ign- ign- ending. Igni- Oof, that's a tough one. I was not going to say Ignatius, so don't set off any volcanoes. And enigmatic. Enig- I can't say it, God's enigmatic. Ign- Enigmatic uh, answer. Uh, that'd be great. Otherwise, that's it. I'll just be here fantas- not fantasizing, imaginizing you guys on vacation. Crone, look at that bathing suit. You look so cute. All right, guys, you know, rest well, rule well. And as always, I am pentient or whatever. I'm not petulant. I'm, you know, patient and, you know, serving. Good night.